Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking to another set of authors with new books out. First, we have Karen Russell. Karen is a native of Miami, won the 2012 National Magazine Award for Fiction, and her first novel, Swamplandia, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. She is a graduate of the Columbia MFA program, a 2011 Guggenheim Fellow, a MacArthur Genius Grant winner, and a 2012 Fellow at the American Academy in Berlin. She lives in Portland, Oregon, and her new collection is entitled Orange World and Other Stories. Hey, Karen, how's it going today? It's going really well. I, I know to kind of jump in, you have just released your new collection of stories, Orange World, and I was wondering how you're feeling. Well, um, to be totally honest, right this moment, I think I'm feeling a little bit like my brain is a fog machine. <laughs> um, I'm in my third trimester, and I've, you know, it's just a different way to do a book tour. <laughs> yeah, wow. Oh, man. You're, you're... I know. I think, you know, it, and it's a very, it's, it's been a really kind of a, a much shorter, I'm just, I'm just sort of traveling for two weeks, and then I'll be grounded. So in some ways, um, yeah, it's intense, and it's intense, and Intensely wonderful too. I mean, I I really do love this part. It's such a funny, it's such a funny kind of schedule to be on. I feel like it takes so long to write a book, and then there is like this brief window where you get to meet real people in real time again, and then you sort of submarine back into fiction. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I get that. That's kind of cool. So you're like poking your head up and checking in with everyone. You poke up, yeah, and it's great. I mean, I don't really get to travel. A ton these days. I've been a little bit in like a baby cocoon. We have a, a two-year-old, and I just feel like since his birth, we've we've been living in another time zone and country or something. Yeah. And so it, that has been a, a true pleasure, you know, kind of seeing old friends and and meeting readers too. You know, you get to kind of yeah connect with with people again, and that feels really good because I do think most writers it is a sort of isolating thing to do you know yeah do you i know you're you moved to portland now and and that's kind of your home base at this point um but before that you'd been moving around a good bit teaching position to teaching position does it feel do you feel more grounded in living or being based out of somewhere finally yeah i really do and i think it's taken quite a while for that to sink in you know yeah i mean i'm in austin today I have had this visiting position, so we still sort of bounce a little bit. For the past two falls, I've been teaching at Texas State. This has a really wonderful MFA program. So, and, I, and my husband loves it because we leave like the freezing rains of Portland <laughs> for, uh, and get to come to Texas for you know for just the fall semester. Oh, awesome! So, so it's still a little. There's still some bouncing, you know. But I mean, I really think that felt unimaginable to me for a long time just the idea of putting down a route anywhere after florida seemed seemed for some reason impossible you know and it, it's funny because it, it sounds like such a boring story and paraphrase you know it's like that's good for you you bought a house and you live with a man now <laughs> you know and that's just but it, it, it you know you know from from my lived perspective it still feels pretty wild no i, I can imagine that um did you ever see yourself being outside of South Florida? Has all this been kind of a surprise for you? You know, I um, it just broke my heart a little bit. My my parents now, I think they're scheming to move to Portland. It's sort of grandbaby central, you know. Yeah. And so, and my my grandfather passed away, so we don't have. I have a lot of my friends still live in Miami, but um, I was surprised that they bulldozed our house, you know. So there really is. <laughs> just to just to kind of 
put the nail in the coffin, you know, and just say, like, hey, you really can't, you really can't, there's no such thing as going home, you know? Yeah. And that is a funny, that is a funny feeling. It still feels so much like my home, even though it's been, like, over a decade, well over a decade since I've lived there. You know, and I, I, I hadn't left the state, really, until college. I saw snow for the first time when I was 19, you know? <laughs> so it was really my world for the most important years, when you're setting up your entire <laughs> kind of creative apparatus. And I think it still feels like my home somehow imaginatively, even as, you know, these new stories, only one is set there, kind of unfold, unfolds there. Yeah, which is uh, the gondoliers, right? Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to talk about that one specifically, actually. I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, being in New Orleans and uh, being born and raised in South Louisiana, the idea of rising seas and climate change is something that's very, very connected with, with my experience and something that I'm thinking about constantly. And that story addresses kind of an apocalyptic after uh, when South Florida is no more and there's now a new Florida. And I was really interested to hear your thoughts about this idea or the impending thing known as climate change coming into being and like how that's kind of affected your writing. Yeah, I'm glad to know we have that in common, David. It is sort of finally, right? It seems like it's on the forefront of everybody's mind. Yeah. That sort of sense of urgency and despair, too, I think, around something that doesn't need to feel inevitable. But, you know, it, it seems like we're having a really tough time as a species <laughs> kind of putting the brakes on sea level rise and the acidification of the oceans. and. Florida's a frontier, I think, in a lot of ways, and, and, and one of those ways is in terms of climate change. I mean, when I was working on that story, it sort of came out of this period where, do you remember every single, you know, Rolling Stone, The New Yorker, like every major journalistic outlet had done a story on Miami underwater? Yes. You know, and with just a tonal mixture that ranged from, you know, just a kind of a strange glee, like some kind of dance macabre glee, <laughs> to like... <laughs> You know, I, I remember reading one story where they talked about how, you know, these engineers from the Netherlands had come to meet with Miami officials, and they just basically were like, oh, my God, this limestone, what are you going to do? You're doomed. <laughs> you know, like, I don't think they <laughs> really, uh, it, it was not an encouraging story to read. So I, I did feel just such sadness, you know, and, and a kind of helplessness. And I remember even as a kid in South Florida, I, I think a lot of this informed Swamplandia, feeling like you have a connection through your older relatives to the Florida that you just missed. You know, the sky, there were, you know, hundreds of birds in one glimpse. And I just grew up listening to my grandparents and my father talk about when they would go fishing for snapper and how populous certain parts of the Atlantic used to be. And we would go snorkeling in Pennacamp. And I mean, in my lifetime as a kid, right, this is like a, an eye blink really on the planet. Yeah. And I watched sort of this, like, beautiful reef that was every color of the rainbow turn into this browned-out ghost town. And and so I think long before I had any kind of vocabulary or perspective, yeah. <laughs> I, you just register on some level, like on some animal level, this is deeply awry, you know. In my lifetime, I shouldn't be able to clock changes this extreme in the landscape around me. This is a very long answer, I'm sorry, but the, but the gondoliers... I think I really was trying to find a way to be honest about both things because I had just read a lot of these stories that seemed, if if it wasn't quite that they were reveling in the fact that, you know, yeah. that, you know by 2100 we might see this kind of devastation, 
I wasn't I wasn't feeling a lot of hope inside them. Yeah. And um, I do sort of think like the egotism of humans has all kinds of manifestations. And, you know, one might be just sort of profoundly underestimating kind of the revisionary capacity of nature and also our own natures. Like I'm watching the, it's interesting too, because I also think right now, Florida, right? Like you see the, the Parkland kids. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's amazing to me. You know, you do see this new generation that's saying, we reject <laughs> like the old order and we're going to broker a new relationship with nature and we're, and we're not incrementalists and we're going to completely reimagine. And, and that there's something so exciting to me that Florida is also ground zero for that kind of movement. You yeah. Know? I think that's interesting because, you know, we're trying to find silver linings in that. And I do love what you said that they're, they're kind of reveling in it. I, I almost want to say they're romanticizing this narrative, right. but I won't go that far. Um, but, but I I can see that, um, was, I I was just curious reading this story was one of the inspirations behind it. Um, uh, Andre Tarkovsky's stalker. No, I wish I could say that it was. I'm not familiar. Uh, if, I'm sorry. That's a that's a blind spot of mine. Oh, it's cool. I, I highly recommend it if you've got three hours. It's 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 a drudge, but it's it's one that's definitely worth going worth into. Worth going on, yeah. Well, cool. Well, to kind of to kind of well, not cool. To no, but you know what I was thinking of. Have you seen recently Night of the Hunter? Yes. I mean, that's sort of a weird, <laughs> kind of a weird start and aim in the constellation. But I, I think that, I think that one scene has like influenced me in all kinds of spooky ways that I can't even totally account for where these siblings are floating down the river. You know, they've, they've kind of escaped the sociopath preacher Mm -hmm. and the sister's like singing her brother a lullaby, you know? Yeah. And it kind of defies all of the things you think, you know, about how suspense should work in a movie, you know, it's like at the, the, they're in this flight for their lives, right? This guy has just murdered their mom. And it's like at the, adrenaline peak of the roller coaster there's just this sort of strange lateral move down the river yeah i mentioned that just because one of the things i was thinking about in this story there's a sort of dead spot where these sisters are floating together yeah i I wasn't consciously thinking about that movie but i saw it recently i saw a clip of it recently and i remembered how exhilarating i found that idea that even in a wasteland you know or even at at a, a moment of like just uh, you know, ir- irremediable despair. That somehow there is some solace in in this non-human nature. You know that because um, in this scene, right, you're watching it through a spider web. <laughs> There's like the kids are sort of background, and what's foregrounded are like these bullfrogs that are throating and stuff like that. And there's there's some sense of like without negating kind of like the horror these kids are living through. The, there's a sort of more panoramic capture of a deeper, older kind of order, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, this is like a crazy answer. I'm so sorry. No, no, I, <laughs> but, I love it. I love but it. I, just, I, I, I really was thinking with this story, I wanted to be honest about the fact that this is obviously not the future anybody wants, right? Yeah. Nobody wants to see like a, a flaming marble of a planet Earth where, you know, cities are destroyed by rising tides. Yeah. But, um, but if you push beyond sort of our, I think there's something limited and, and probably impoverished about our imaginings of apocalypse too, you know, that there might be some hope for some kind of unborn potential. 
I think so. And I think that that's brilliant. I, I love that you brought that scene up. I, I thought that's an interesting tangent because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about kind of deals with that because in those types of scenes or those types of moments really lend themselves better to poetry or to film when you're able to do things outside of a narrative. And one of the things I appreciate about your work is how it kind of revels in those strange moments and feelings. And um, one of the things I was wondering is that when you start a story, um, are you starting it from an emotion or an impulse or is it from an image or a situation that you have in your mind? Oh, what a great question. Thank you for that reading. You know, it's funny. I think that, um, I mean, some of my best friends are poets. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm just a failed poet sometimes. <laughs> like if I could, if I could do that magic, I would, you know, because some of the pleasure for me is just having a vessel that lets you attend to certain images or emotions, you know, and it, and sometimes that can feel a little bit at odds with the exigencies of a plot which is why I loved that scene in Night of the Hunter, because it's sort of so unexpected, and it doesn't follow this inevitable line of suspense. That's sort of, you know, you're not, like, cranking up to the climax. Mm-hmm. Remember when we all learned about plot in seventh grade and they drew, it like, the witch's hat? Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I feel like that can, be, that can be kind of limiting sometimes in some ways if you're just on the, you know, the, the causal ricochet of here's the conflict, you know, here's the rising action, whatever. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times these, and I've said this so much that now I'm I'm skeptical a little, you know, when you get kind of self-suspicious if you've heard yourself say something a million times. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, it, these stories really did tend to start with places, you know, so there'd be some, I went to the Timberline Lodge and I was like haunted by this scary frozen ski lift there. And I saw the pictures of all these now dead boys, you know, who had built this fantasy ski resort during the Great Depression. And so that somehow got inside me. Or I went to Joshua Tree National Park. That was like my first date with my now husband. And I had never been to the desert. And (laughs) I had never seen Joshua Trees. (laughs) I had just been reading the myth of Daphne and Apollo and some of these, you know, metamorphoses again. And so it's mysterious to me, sort of, it does feel sometimes like a blown spore that just happens to land inside you and and take root. You know, it, it's it's very mysterious to me. But then I think if the story is going to work at all, and a lot of them don't, you know, I'll have sort of like a situation and I'll have a landscape, and it has to it has to sync up with some real question that I have. You know? <laughs> yeah. Or it doesn't. It just doesn't really work. It's just like uh, this will be. You know. It's it's definitely I could see that. That that was another thing I kinda wanted to ask you. Um is there a story or a setup that's kind of been with you for a long time that you have had to abandon and keep on coming back to? Yes. I'm gonna tell you really candidly, but I wanna ask your listeners not to take this idea from me. Yes. <laughs> Good. We I, we will honor that. <laughs> no, really, because I still dream that it's I'm gonna make it work sometime, you know? I mean I've had I've had quite a few of these. I really, I was joking that I want to publish a collection called The Cul-de-Sacs, and it'll just be like, <laughs> you know, the, the, the B-sides that just never, the, you know. <laughs> we, we live in Oregon. We live right by that Howard Hughes plane that, like, flew six inches and then crashed again because it was, like, so literally overburdened with his ambitions for it. And I feel like I have so many drafts like that on my desktop right now. Yeah. But the one that I really wanted to make work and I think you'll appreciate this as like a 
a watery person yourself. Yes. Was about um, this coral, like this coral reef made of children. This Medusa coral, like these kids that had just been like turned into coral. And it turns out, <laughs> um, unsurprisingly, like telling a story from the perspective of a coral reef. <laughs> Again, is this maybe better suited to a poem <laughs> where you don't have to worry about like a dramatic kind of dramatically inert <laughs> scenario? But I, yeah, that's one that I really, I still for some reason feel so committed to it. It was like uh, off the coast of Cuba. Yeah. Um, there was this myth that there was, you know, the, this special kind of coral that just turned people. No, I think the concept is super interesting. I, I'm excited for that story I to know, actually. That, like, yeah, yeah, you just see like these weird dargery coral coral reef <laughs> yeah it, it lends itself to so much but i can imagine it's really hard to wrangle like some sort of narrative out of that it's really hard to wrangle some sort of narrative out of it exactly and it's hard to sort of figure out for me that one i think one of the challenges was where to position it on the kind of like fantastical to realistic spectrum like yeah. i tried versions where this was just like set in contemporary cuba and it's kind of a counterpoint to a more realistic tale happening you know on the island is just this myth that's sort of like humming around them. And then I tried versions that are just very like, you know, just sort of like balls out fantasy where it's yeah. like these are just some kids made of coral who like washed ashore <laughs> during a hurricane, you know, so neither of neither has worked. So but I, I would say that I think it's instructive, right? Because it I think sometimes people might not be totally aware of how challenging it is to make something live, you know? They yeah. just hear the crazy idea and they're like, Oh, that's cool. And it's like so so few of them actually <laughs> actually work. And ultimately, right, figuring out a way to make a story feel consequential, no matter what register you're telling it in, that's, that's not an easy thing to do. No. And I like the idea of register as well, because Game of Thrones ended last night. I'm not sure if you were aware. I feel like, what's happening to me? I feel, I feel so lonely. I don't know. <laughs> I'm late. You know, this is, I watched The Wire like two years ago. I just feel like maybe I'll... <laughs> Maybe in 2033 I'll watch Game of Thrones. I mean, you've been busy just uh, just a little bit, uh, so yeah. I think it's understandable. But uh, but to kind of to get to a question from it, I uh, it had me thinking about endings, particularly for this interview, and I wondered what's your relationship to endings because I know you have um, a reputation and I've seen it for uh, leaning into ambivalence in your endings, and I'm also kind of wondering on top of that, um, what does a satisfying ending mean to you? Yeah a good question and you know i sort of think i i i pray right but i did sort of feel like like my endings are evolving a little bit in a way that that's exciting for me (laughs) to see (laughs) not even in a way that feels like willed at all right but just it's just interesting sort of to to watch yourself changing in time a little bit and um where i want to land is a little different now i think in my first collection a lot of the stories end quite abruptly and I would try to find almost like gonging the right note, you know, something that I felt sounded out the <laughs> the emotional heart of the story or kind of the, the question that was living inside the story so that, there, you know, it, it, I, I was really drawn to these endings that were indeterminate, right? So it was totally, I remember my grandfather read this story, Accident Brief, where these two kids get stranded on a glacier the transponder's lost. It's looking really bad for them, and the story ends pretty abruptly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was like, that's so, so, you read it online, you know? 
which was also kind of a milestone. He's like, that's so smart, Karen. You've got to buy the magazine to see how it ends. <laughs> no, that's the ending. Papa, it's over. And he was like, well, finish the damn story, Karen. Like, he was like, so disgusted that I just, you know. <laughs> and I, it was, I sort of think of, you know, remember that wonderful Flannery O'Connor story where she kind of got that same feedback from a neighbor who was like, you're just going to, like, leave this character in a diner. We never find out, you know, the, what happens next. Oh, yes, yes, exactly. I know that and one. She, you know, and I sort of, I think I really feel similarly, especially with stories, that the the question for me that's interesting is never sort of like, well, do they, do the boys survive? Like, how is their escape accomplished? You know, it's, I think in that case, I was like, I just want to find a way to meditate on this particular feeling, you know. It's pretty literal in that story, right? But of just being... Like, yeah, lost in some monotony of snow, you know, really, really feeling like I think that story was like even the past can be taken from you. So like watching things thaw and refreeze and change and realizing how totally powerless you are to construct any kind of stable narrative, even about your own reality (laughs) as a kid. And so that but it, you know what I mean? It, It had less to do maybe with like, okay, well. Do they do they successfully build a fire in an ice cave that night? You know. Yeah. And with with these news, so I think this is such a long answer. I'm so sorry, but I think a really good ending. It maybe it gathers up some of the themes from the story, or finds a way to ask the question that catalyzed the story. You know, in light of what you've just sort of witnessed or experienced as a reader. Yeah, I think I think that's solid. And you know, I, I think about. Um, it, kind of similar to your grandfather's experience. I remember one of my first times with one of your stories was um, Haunting Olivia. Um, yeah. And I remember getting to the end and being like, oh God, w- w- what's going to happen? Does this continue? <laughs> and I, I remember rereading it uh, a couple of years ago now and just having read a little bit more since then and being like, yeah. oh, the point of this is to be haunted. Like yeah. I'm supposed to be oh, haunted. Thank you for saying that. I think that's right. I think it's a little bit, a good ending is kind of a baton pass to the reader and it successfully haunts you, and it, and you're not left. I mean, maybe you're left longing to know what will happen for them, but you feel like you've been given enough ima- information to imagine some alternatives. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's not you're not just sort of like, oh, this lazy ass person took the fall leaves from the first paragraph and sprinkled them in the last paragraph <laughs> and took a cab away from yeah. the story. You know, like I, someone was telling me they had read the story, The Prospectors, in this new collection. They were mm-hmm. like, it's a happy ending. That's so amazing, and I. It was funny for me to hear that because I don't think of that ending as as a particularly happy one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was, the, I, without kind of giving everything away, it's not quite as dire as, you know, the transponder is lost and we don't know if we're going to survive the night on a glacier. Um, but it did feel to me like uh, these two young women, they've been through just a pretty harrowing experience and sort of touched the third rail of, <laughs> you know, um, just some very difficult, difficult truths, and if if they do in fact escape with their lives, you know, I even as a writer, I feel like they still have an open destiny, and they've taken on a lot of ordinance that night. You know, it's yeah. not like the story's over for them. I mean, the, I imagine they'll be there's. I really it's such a tiny thing, but just from like a craft perspective, the editor suggested changing. There's this bird that's shrieking all the way down the mountain at the very end. This image of a a golden bird shrieking at the top of its lungs. And um, they were like, what about screaming or singing? And I was like, no, it really has to be shrieking. 
and I don't even know if it'll hit a reader, you know, the way that I, I hope, but for me writing it, I, there had to be some note, some literal note in this case, sounding at the end to suggest, like, please don't mistake this for a happy ending, you mm-hmm. know? Like, <laughs> there's, please hear, like, hear, hear this screaming with, with, with them, hear this shrieking with them. Yeah, I, I get that. Um, I know our time is a little bit short, so uh, yeah. just well, a couple more. Well, that's because I keep rambling i'm sorry oh i love it i'm enjoying this so this is this is fine with me um i i am interested what's a storytelling trope that you hate and is there one that you love oh i guess this doesn't really constitute a trope but i was just having a conversation with karen shepherd i don't know if you guys know her work she's amazing Mm -hmm. she has an amazing collection of stories that i felt should have gotten a lot more attention um kiss me someone that Tin House did, and um, we were just talking about how allergic we are to a kind of fiction where it's like a really good person who is only good is confronted by an obstacle and overcomes it, you know, and how um, <laughs> how totally disingenuous that can feel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You're like, like, you know, just like a pure, like a purely good person with a really good heart. Uh, not that people can't have good hearts, you know, but yeah. um, I also think like. Maybe this one. This isn't quite a trope either, but I do sort of think I've read some stories recently where it's like a bewildered and innocent man struggles with trouble. <laughs> and yeah, I'm try- you know, like a, like a, the way that like we're asked to reflexively sympathize with these sort of like men that are in the blind spot, you know, causing lots of damage to themselves and others. Yeah. And you're, you know, but you feel affection for them. You're like this poor, clumsy dude <laughs> who, you know, let's all applaud him as he kind of Mr. Magoo's through this life hurting everybody. <laughs> yeah. And there's so many of those stories that even if it's done really well, it's kind of like, really, another one? Yeah. I don't know. And I just have been noticing, like, if you just did search and replace and that character was like a lady named Sue. Mm-hmm it would evoke such a different response. And I've just, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why that, that's, but I just read a story like that where it was someone who's like, I, you know, I'm not proud of what I did, except that <laughs> no. here's my CV of all the people that I heard and I'm sort of proud of it. You know? <laughs> I get that. To kind of, one final question before you go, um, to put it back on the collection. Um, yeah. This is your third short story collection. And I'm always interested with um, short fiction writers in their process for curating the stories within a collection, like, and how they kind of balance how these things reflect and refract on each other. Yeah. Do you know, I was thinking about this too, because (laughs) I mean, there's no trophy for this, but don't you sometimes feel like, don't you sometimes just pat yourself on the back for like the stuff you don't publish? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Inflict on people. Like (laughs) I really do feel there's like a shadow book that is twice the length of this book. I think. (laughs) You know, um, and part of and oh, you know, or even some stories that I that I that I like that have been published. There was a conjunction story that, you know, it's it's, it's pretty old now. It's from like 2010, I think. But I, we, I just decided it. Um, it was called Dowsing for Shadows, and it's also set in the desert. These creepy kids have these taxidermied rattlers that <laughs> help them to find shadows. Um, and I. But it, it felt so close in some ways to the bad graft, just in like the literal and the figurative territory it was mapping. So mm. I think part of the work is figuring out what's the strongest articulation for this particular book of that question. Yeah. And then 
I knew I wanted to end on Orange World because that felt like it sort of opens up this awning that contains all the stories. There's like a metaphor in there that I thought really worked. Just a, just a way to gather up everything that you've read so far and maybe maybe open up a different way to look at these landscapes that can seem probably pretty diverse from one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is sort of like making a mixtape, right? It's like trying to seduce somebody with a mixtape. It is. It really is. <laughs> I, think, I really think it's like similar considerations, you know what I mean? You would never put like if you're sort of in like a wallowing like emo hole in your mixtape, then you know you need <laughs> like Beyonce or something. <laughs> but yeah, you, but trying trying to find sort of rhythms between the stories. I think the prospectors and the bad graft, I was thinking, well, these are both in sort of very different ways. Tales where we watch a couple launch into a future together and we see this this sort of terrible collision actually of their kind of initial plan or their desire and, and what is revealed when they, when it it's meets up with kind of these blood red exigencies of the places they've landed, you know, yeah. um, then sort of tornado auction and um, black Corfu in a funny way that felt like, like shadow stories of one another, even though they're, you know, one is like this Nebraskan weather rancher <laughs> and one is a, a zombie doctor in 1620, Croatia, but some of like the the bitterness inside them, the grinding bitterness and the hunger for a kind of transcendence, you know. So it's sometimes without without there, you know. I felt like I didn't want there to be too much overlap, where it would just feel like one story was the weaker twin of another. Yeah. And so some of the those stories are just not in this book. But I did I did keep feeling like okay, well, well, there are a lot of stories here about wanting to be somewhere and wanting to be nowhere and like just hungering for a kind of freedom and feeling these earthly tethers, you know, pulling you back. <laughs> and also, I mean, in a funny way, just sort of the power of landscape itself to to shape and to thwart your desires. No, definitely. And that kind of comes through. And I, is that fun for you to kind of get those subtextual things at the end of it? Yeah, I think so. I really liked assembling... I liked thinking about the order and the secret story the order tells. And it was funny, you know, this is not something that even readers would ever need to be obvious to anyone, but because the story sort of spanned this five-year period where I went from, like, being a lunatic who just never lived in the same place for more than six months to having my son and, you know, make, really making a home somewhere. And also, you know, every, every everyone knows the other story that we lived together globally yeah. <laughs> these last five years thinking about the stories as a way to refract those experiences too, you know? Yeah. I think that that's important. And, um, I know our time is done, so I'll end with, um, my question. I ask everyone that is, um, what are you reading right now? Oh, right, right now. My honest answer is, um, Rachel Ingalls, Mrs. Binstead Safari. Oh, nice. Do you know this book? I, I've heard it mentioned. So I just love, um, I just love Miss Caliban so much. <laughs> The, the, there's a trope that I love, the trope of someone falling in love with like a a frogman named Larry who may or may not be real. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a solid trope. <laughs> like a, an amphibian lover. Remember, it really seemed like the amphibious lover was having a moment um, between that and um, the shape of water. And I don't know. <laughs> let's let's get that. Let's get more stories like that. Um, yes, yeah, more 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 of the fish. Calvino, man. right? I mean, in, in Cosmic Comics, uh, yeah, the the amphibious lover. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's but a trip I, I that's can a, yeah, behind. and I'm reading um, 
Jakira Diaz. Thank you. Jakira Diaz has a memoir coming out in October called mm-hmm. Ordinary Girls. She's a she's a Miami writer, and I just I can't get over this book. It's um, I I don't even really read that much memoir to be honest, and I, you know, where a book comes along that makes you just <laughs> revise your opinion about everything. Yeah. I feel like it's it's um, and if you, as a as a Florida person, you'll love it. Um, speaking of a collision of like a really strong, amazing personality and a unforgiving yeah. landscape. Okay, well, interesting. I'll have to look out for that one. Yeah, um, well, Karen, ending this, I always I have like a thousand more questions, but I think that's a good thing. Uh, so we'll leave it there. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, David, thank you.